Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali. Uh, ideally, we should be doing a Wimbledon preview, which we very well may do on Twitter or maybe on a podcast soon. But, uh, you know, on the occasion of the championship starting tomorrow, I wanted to revisit a very special chapter, uh, which I call the ultimate wildcard chapter. And I had followed this career unfold. So uh, it's kind of fitting to talk about the 2001 men's champion, Goran Ivanisevic, and helping me unpack and do the honors as historian and Hall of Famer Steve Flink. And we both thought this is this is a very deserved uh, recollection of a worthy winner who was a finalist for more than a few occasions. So on that occasion, uh, let me not waste any time welcoming Steve back on the podcast. Steve, how are you? Akeem, I'm very good. I'm very good. I, I, it's, I, I'm looking forward to this topic. That was a very memorable year at the All England Club. I was glad to be there. And it was the crowning moment, obviously, of Goran Ivanisevic's career to win there in 2001. So looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, he came into this as a wild card, and uh, the Brits probably, you know, this was Henman's best chance, Sampras losing to Federer, Roddick still not being Roddick. Marat Safin was, I think, seated high, but he wasn't a grass court exponent. Uh, Hewitt wasn't the player he would become by next year. Uh, some would say he would he would actually win the U.S. Open, but yeah, he wasn't in the mix uh, towards the tail end of the tournament. So this is, and of course, there was Pat Rafter. So what are your recollections heading into this Wimbledon? Yeah, events unfolded. Number one, Gorn didn't have high expectations. I think he was thrilled to get the wild card, number one. As you said, he had been in the three finals in the past, and two of those were five setters, one to Agassi in 92, the second to Sampras in 98, in between beaten soundly by Sampras in the 94 final. But by 01, having been beaten in the first round the year before, ranked 125 in the world, as you said, a wild card. It just seemed inconceivable that he could make a run that would take him maybe, I mean, beyond the fourth round. That, that, would, that would have seemed uh, impressive in itself. But, yes, all those other events unfolded. Things opened up, but it wasn't that easy. Second round, he had to beat a seated player, Moya. He then he knocked out Andy Roddick, who was not seated that year, but was very dangerous. Another big server and knocks off Andy in four, and he beat Greg Rosetsky, the U.S. Open finalist of 97, another dangerous grass quarter, a fellow lefty. And then, uh, then Safin, you know, who, of course, had won the U.S. Open the year before, uh, beating Sampras in the finalists. That was granted that Safin didn't know his way around a grass court that well, but these were all pretty dangerous adversaries. And then finally, Tim Henman, the perennial Wimbledon semifinalist who always seemed to be knocking on the door. And then he had Goran two sets to one. And we should talk about that. And then maybe we can go back to some other things. But that was, frankly, the key to it all, because Agassi and Rafter played the opening semifinal that year in 01. The weather was still quite nice when they went on court. And they played an epic five-setter. A one by Rafter, eight, six, and the fifth after Agassi served for the match, led 5-4 at 30-15. It looked like it was in his pocket. Uh, but... Rafter came back to beat Agassi for the second year in a row on, on the center court in the Wimbledon semifinal. So he's in the final safely and 
when Ivanisevic and Henman got on court, it looked very likely that it was going to be, they, we, we had no reason to believe they wouldn't finish the match. And, and uh, Henman had two sets to one and, and, and they got into the fourth set and it started to rain and it was getting, they decided to call it. The bottom line is, we, when we look back the next day or then after the next couple of days, we, there was a lot of thought that they probably could have brought them back out. They might well have been able to complete it, but they never dreamed that they couldn't get at most a set and a half done the next day. So they just played it what they thought was playing it safe. Instead, they they got it into a uh, Gorn got it into a fifth the next day, winning the tiebreak and finally won it in five. So that was. He, he was the first to admit he was pretty lucky to escape that it most likely if they finish Friday night, he loses. Even he said that. But instead, he pulls it out, but not until Sunday. They didn't complete it Saturday. They played it into the fifth set. Saturday. It rained again. The women's final was also postponed between Hennon and, and Venus Williams. And they came back, finally finished it Sunday, and Gorn was unwilling to play the final the same day. Nobody could blame him. Physically, he would have been fine. But mentally, when you've been through three days of living with this Henman match and you're back in your fourth Wimbledon final, you, you're not, you, you need that day off. So those are the, that's what I remember most about it, all those circumstances. Yes, it, it was important that Sampras lost that match to Federer and then Federer lose to Henman. All that was to Gorn's benefit, but... Somehow this was a, a run of destiny, in my view, looking back on it all. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And even uh, if you kind of set this uh, scene for uh, this monumental run, I think in 98 final, when he lost to Sampras, when he had that look at a Sampras second serve and he netted that uh, backhand, uh, that's the most dejected I've ever seen someone lose a Wimbledon final. You know, Yana Nowotna, of course, broke down few years ago but this was like without tears it seemed like something bad had happened and he himself said i think in 99 or maybe you remember uh that he he felt suicidal or something you know because he saw the world you know around him ended and that was his third final he lost to sampras and then coming on here uh, Eve, just a quick quick thing it's true he had two he actually had two of those set point second serves Backhand returns missed on both. One second, one of those second serves was quite good from Pete. The other, not as good. And Gorn later reflected that Pete was known for that second serve, but on one of them, the one you're describing, it was not. It was for Pete a very average second serve, but Gorn couldn't put the backhand return in play, which, by the way, was not uncommon for him. I don't think he was known for his returning, but despite all that, he lost that set to Sampras, lost the third, came back and won the fourth, took it into a fifth, and then Sampras eventually ran away with a fifth 6-2 after it was locked at 2-all. So just that, that, that made it doubly agonizing, probably, that he gave himself a second chance with a brilliant four-set comeback to take it into a fifth and still didn't win it. And Sampras would told me when I wrote the book of Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited that he was having thoughts during that match that maybe it just wasn't going to be his day. And he had great sympathy for Ivanisevic afterwards because he felt that in many ways Goran had pretty much had outplayed him, but somehow... He had scratched and clawed and found a way to beat Gorn. But you're right. That was a devastatingly potent defeat for Gorn Ivanisevic. You know, having survived a marathon five-setter with Krychek, the 96 champion in the semifinals, winning that match to get back into the finals again. So what a history he'd had on that court. I mean, unbelievable. And, uh, and you know, like, let me just finish my thought there and just sure. bring you in for a follow-up. No, because uh, his last title, I think, came in somewhere in in split Croatia in 98. And 
I didn't even look what time of the calendar it was. So it was roughly three years. He hadn't won an ATP Tour title. He was ranked outside the hundreds. And even in 99 and 2000, he played a full schedule. Of course, he was injured. He was a pale shadow of himself. Uh, I remember the 99 loss to Todd Martin. Uh, the same day, Boris Becker played his last match on center court. Again, a very rain-interrupted 99 edition of the championships. Goran and Becker was supposed to be the quarterfinal because they played few matches and had a big rivalry. And again, yeah. you remember Rain intervened and yeah. the fourth, fourth round ended on Wednesday. So Goran on, I think, court one or court two lost to Todd Martin in straight sets. And at that point, he said at the press conference he, that he was not sure if he's going to take this pain and agony. He may not return to Wimbledon again. And then next day, he loses to Arno Clermont. And you're right. Everybody thought by that time he's a spent force. He's not going to win. Forget a championship. He's not going to reach a fourth round. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and, that, and that run was magical. So before we, you know, talk about the Henman match and uh, the Rafter final, where would you rate his serve? I know we've talked about this many an occasion. Is he is he a top two, top three serve that you've seen? You've seen many matches in center court. You've seen him live at the Open. Where would you rate that serve? Well, you know, when I did this book, I wrote this book on the greatest matches of tennis matches of all time in 2012. And just had some fun in the back of the book. You may have looked at it where I, I ranked the best strokes of all time, which was, you know, not an easy task, but one that I enjoyed just taking a cut at. And I had him in my time. I had Sampras at the top and then Gonzalez and then Becker. And I believe I had Goran at number four. Uh, and I don't know if I would change that. I still think it, you ask Sampras, he'll tell you is the biggest weapon that he ever faced. And that's why the matches that he played against Goran at Wimbledon were, are so still remain so vivid in the eye of his mind because they were, those were always scary encounters and Gorn would go for those big second serves as Pete would too, obviously, but Gorn would roll the dice a bit more and left-hander, big guy, that court was made for him. And, and frankly, just a brief, brief aside, I think the one that we're talking about the Pete match in 98, but I really think the one that he would have also regretted had he never won Wimbledon was to not beat Agassi in 92. Not that Agassi was not on a great roll having beaten Becker and McEnroe himself and just unexpectedly finding his form, you know, early in his Wimbledon career. Uh, but that's the one I think he would have lamented a lot too, because it went all the way to four all in the fifth and then Gorn played a bad game on his serve and kind of gave it away at the end. And that was a very winnable match too. So, and he had beaten Pete that year in 92. So he'd had so many imprints on that court and, to get back to your original point, the serve was always the reason why, you know, I mean, the serve was the cornerstone of his game and it was very hard to read. And he just, it, 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 it I, as I say, I, I had it there. I, I'd have to look at it again, my list, how I feel about it 10 years later, but I'm sure I would still have him somewhere in that top five. Yeah. I think same for me and, uh, you know, our good friend, Mark Woodford, you know, like when, he was in the podcast maybe with you or maybe in a solo episode. We talked about uh, the second or third round that Ivanisevic in his 92 final run, he played Mark Woodford and had like a 34 aces. And there was a time Woodford tried returning serve, uh, changing the racket into a baseball bat kind of a position. And because he was just guessing. And yeah. and, you know, and Sampras and Becker and Rosetsky, Krychek, Stieg, Filipus, a lot of rhythm type servers, but no one, I think, had that quick 40 love like Goran when he was on, he would, and there's a reason why he served 206 aces or 207 aces in 92, 
because he was just an ace yeah. machine. He was. What, what Sam? He was. And he came close to that. He became close. You know, his, that was his record. But I mean, he, I, I don't remember what he ended up with, frankly, in 01. But almost all of those years, he'd be somewhere 150 and up. And and it wasn't just the aces, the service winners. Sometimes you'd get, you know, a, something of a play on it, but not really expect to get it back into play. Yeah, I can see why Woodford would have <laughs> all the guesswork that was involved for him. And he wasn't the only one that that faced that dilemma. And when we're talking about the Sampras 98 final, of course, when you're in the final, you're just like, you know, as close to a trophy, you know, more close to a trophy than a semifinal. But to me, the 95 semi was also where I think if he had more of a, I don't know, like with Goran, you don't play safe. If he, because I remember McIndoe, Dickenberg being very critical of him. Like he went for huge second serves, had a few double falls and gave Pete some looks because that's, to me, was pretty close to peak Goran, 95, 96. I think that's when he was playing some of his best tennis. And I think that Semi, you were there probably, you have a better recollection. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I, think, a, I think that's the match that, that, you know, we can revisit to at some point. Yeah, listen, the thing about that was, though, that Sampras squeezed out the first set tie break and Goran comes back when the second and Pete got an early break in the third. And I remember sitting with Bud Collins because he finally went for a chip back in return and he had not been... He'd always been trying to come over it, and the chip worked perfectly at, at Goran's feet, and he got his break. And you know, Goran comes back and wins the fourth, and then Pete served too well in the fifth. So, but that was a high quality contest to be sure. And you're right, and you're alluding to the second serve and going for, it, and that's what I meant initially is that he did he rolled the dice more. Pete would go for second serves, but more selectively. Exactly. Big points, big situations where he could feel like it was going to pay off, but not just do it routinely. Goran tended to do it routinely, but you're absolutely right. I mean, their standout matches, Goran beat Pete in the 92 semis. I'm sure that's one he'll always recollect. It was a good win. It was on court one, same time as McEnroe Agassi played on center because all the rain that year. And then Pete wins the 94 final cleanly, 6-6 in love. Then we have the five-setter you mentioned in 95 and then the 98 final. But I think Sampras was just the better what it really came down to was that, that he was the better and more poised under pressure. And that was something I talked to Goran about when I interviewed him for the Sampras book. And he said, you know, Pete knew, he knew I was going to do something stupid. You know, I would be, it would be a double fall or a botch volley or whatever it was. He knew I was going to do something like that, something stupid like that. And he, he didn't make those mistakes. I did. So he understood mm-hmm. himself pretty well. That was just his personality. That was just, that was him. And, Absolutely. Uh, but oh one, you know, he was able to to erase so many of those what for him were nightmares by winning so unexpectedly and and having this crowning moment in his career. And there's one line from that '95 semis that has been etched in my memory when McIndoe said after Boris Becker got over Andre Agassi, and he said Goran Ivanisevich should learn something from this guy Boris Becker. He didn't miss a single first serve in both tiebreaks against Agassi, and Goran was going huge. He didn't, you know, he didn't, you know, put put the serve. I, I don't want to say conservatively or maybe more cautious, but had he just gone more first serves in, that's what McIndoe was saying with Sampras. It's a game of margins, you know, like uh, it's uh, again, you know, that's how you know tennis greatness is defined. And Sampras, there's a reason he won all those close matches because he knew when to back the second serve and when to hit a clutch volley, and you know, right. uh, all the stuff is legendary. But even if Savic could have played more finals, but he got his due in 2001. He did. And but the other thing, the flip side of the coin, Sakib, is he 
that daring, that audacity that he had, it, it paid off in certain situations too. It's pretty scary for the other guys to not know what was coming. You could be at a break point or set point. I remember once in a big Sampras match, he, he's down set point five, six, 30, 40, and he, he hits 125 mile an hour, second serve ace down the tee and holds on and wins the set. He could do exact things that were exasperating for you as an opponent, get away with non-percentage tactics too, but you're, you're absolutely right in that it, it caught up to him for the most part. It did cost him a, a, a lot of matches. But that's just who Gorn was. Gorn was a flamethrower. I mean, what McEnroe was saying was very sensible. And Boris did understand that. And Pete did understand that. But that was not Gorn Ivanisevic's uh, mentality. Yeah, and you know, you did say missed while you do something stupid. Uh, this uh, idea of this podcast honestly came few days ago when I was, uh, before going to bed, I was looking at old highlights. ESPN has all these Wimbledon films for eight, eight years. So I started the 1990 film and the film starts with the Ivanisevic Becker semis and Ivanisevic is up a set and he's serving 6-5 to go yeah. up two sets to love as a 17-year-old. And yeah. he hits a, at 15.30, he hits a drop shot, drop volley, drop slice drop shot that goes out. And then Becker makes two returns and he nets both and they go play a tie break. Otherwise, he could have been up two sets to love. Who knows if Becker comes back from there? So no, that's I, I, that match. I remember that match very well. So that's a template, right? You said when he'll do something flashy as a 17-year-old, he did that. And then eight years later, you know, he couldn't make those returns. But let's talk about the Henman match, right? You were there. The match lasted three days in 2001. And there's a famous second serve that seemed like it's going out, but it, it caught both lines or something. Yeah. And I think that was pretty much it. I think that's how close he came to not winning it. Yeah, I could have put him down a break in the fourth. That fourth was so critical. It was all slipping away from him. Hemman was on a roll. It was. It just looked like it was going to go his way. And as they say, Gorn had pointed that out himself. But in fairness to both guys, to play a Wimbledon semifinal across three days, Friday night, Saturday morning into the afternoon, the back Sunday morning, it just, it's so disruptive. It, I mean, it makes me think about some of those you know, if, for instance, if Rafa and Roger had to carry over to the next day when they ended in darkness in their epic in 08, I think it was great, no matter who won, and it was Rafa in 08, that they get it done, even if it was a little bit dark, even if it was almost too dark, then to come back and just roll the dice the next day, flip of the coin almost. And uh, I, I, these guys playing for three days. I, in, retrospect, in retrospect, it's a shame that they didn't try a little harder to give it a little more time Friday night before calling it. But I think they just were too confident that they would get it done the next day. I don't know if they were looking at weather reports that were just more encouraging than what turned out than reality would, would afford us. But that was, that, that was a, that's what I remember the most about it. The little chunks that they had to play on Saturday and Sunday and how, how tough it was on both players and particularly on Henman who had had the lead and who looked like he was on his way to the final. Frankly, though, I must say, I don't think Henman would have beaten Rafter. Uh, that's my my feeling looking back. Well, obviously, Gorin always had a fighting chance and, and pulled it off. No, I think uh, that's how I feel. I would have gotten to that question in the end, but uh, let's talk about the Monday final. Uh, is To my knowledge, this is the second Monday final I ever watched, 88 and 2001. Are there more Monday finals in the history of Wimbledon? No, um, not that I... No, I can't. in the old days, they would play Saturday and Smith Nastassi. 72, which is supposed to be a Saturday final, went to Sunday. 
So it, that was comparable to playing a Monday violin that they had to carry it over a day. And uh, again, it was unfortunate that they, you'd come so close. You'd come a set and a half away from being on schedule and not be able to get it done. Uh, but obviously it made for a very festive atmosphere, you know, all these fans buying tickets that would never have been there. While sadly, a lot of people that had originally planned to be there and had their tickets had to go home. So it was a double-edged sword. But obviously... Were you there for that final? No, I mean, you know what? I had to come back. Uh, like a lot of people, I had to make a choice. And, uh, you know, we would have, I think about three quarters of our press corps left more. Uh, you didn't know whether they would necessarily get it done on Monday. So mm. we were sort of trapped with our air bookings. And I, I missed the end of the only other case I can think of in my career like that was 2012 Roland Garros final with Rafa and Novak, which got started. They played through the rain into the fourth set with Nadal up two sets to one and then how to stop it and come back the next day. So that was the other instance. So no, I didn't get to see it until I got back on the screen. I'd been there for the whole tournament. Uh, and I, and I, I, I didn't find out until I got home what, what had happened, but I went immediately to the tape and watched it. And it was, I have to say, it was a really compelling, great theater, Saki, but even, even Isovich has said himself, He didn't consider it to be a great five-setter in the way that we're talking about these Sampras Ivanisevic matches, for instance. It wasn't of the same caliber. No knock on Rafter, just maybe the nerves, the occasion. Rafter had won, you know, he had his two U.S. Opens and really wanted to add this one to his collection. And it would have been a little icing on the cake. It would have been a, a, a nice to have that on his resume. And Gorn just desperate to finally get that title that had always been proved so elusive. So uh, I, you know, I didn't, I, I thought it was ex extremely entertaining, but level was a bit choppy. Yeah. And like you said, nerves explains uh, the opportunity. Like Goran got this opportunity out of nowhere. He didn't believe he will have a shot. And Rafter, I believe, had announced that this is his last season. So both men would not return to play. So this was just like a winner take all, like ultimate last chance. And I was split as a fan. I like both players, but Goran's window was closing. I've been a supporter of him, but I was a Pat Rafter fan that time. So it was a very tough final to watch, you know, because I know one guy I'm supporting would lose. And uh, like you said, Rafter was, would have been a deserving winner because... Oh, very, very. And, you know, it kind of reminds me a bit when Rafter didn't get that. Reminds me a bit, although he had many, three opportunities, not one. of Roddick never able to add Wimbledon to his U.S. Open title. And in each case, think what a difference it would have made historically for these two great players to have been not only U.S. Open champions and in Raptors' case twice, but to add the Wimbledon title and, and have the two biggest titles in their collection. And so it, I felt the way you did. I thought Raptor would have been – I was so torn because I was delighted for Gorin that he could finally get one. And yet saddened for Raptor that who was who had, as I say, two years in a row beating, beating Agassi in the semis. And he lost to Sampras in a heartbreaker himself in the 2000 final, which was similar to the Gorin in 98 final, quite similar in the sense that Pete had lost the first set and he was down 4-1 in the tiebreak in the second against Rafter in danger of going down two sets to love. And he pulled out the tiebreak 7-5 and then eventually won the match 6-2 in the fourth. So, um, yeah, I, I, I felt quite a bit like you did. The Rafter was somehow that, that robe, that champion's robe would have fit him well. 
but that Gorin, uh, it was a, it was just a, a, an extraordinary story of a man persevering and winning it long after we thought, at least a few years after we thought it was possible. Absolutely. So let's wrap this up by talking about the man who did not win Rafter, and you also mentioned Henman. Me and Mert were planning a podcast of still may happen at some point, uh, but he was coaching, you know, at the uh, at the qualifying event this year, so uh, we couldn't record. But the topic was the best place to not have one Wimbledon. And Rafter, Roddick, and Lendl were on that short list of players who we were going to dis, uh, discuss. Henman was an honorable mention for me, and I don't know what Mert would have said. Uh, even though Henman has made five semis, I always believe Rafter just had a better look at these championships. Uh, to me, he was... It's it's going to be unfair to say, statistically, was he the more accomplished? But I thought he had more game to win on grass. His volley was world-class. His athleticism was right up there. Oh, wait, Sukib, you're saying Rafter was more worthy than who? Henman. Oh, 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 no question. No question. I mean, look, because look, look at the two U.S. Open titles. Look at his record elsewhere. And Tim was a terrific player. May got to a French, French semi, U.S. Open semis. You know, he had a good record elsewhere. But you never, you never really thought he was going to win. I never thought he was going to pull one off. Wimbledon was always a possibility with the, the constant uh, wave of emotion from the fans who might have carried him to it. But yeah, no, Rafter was a, which is why I think had he played Henman, that I think he might have won quite, quite decisively. Decisively in the sense of you know a four or five and four or a six three in the fourth. Some, but not 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 down to the wire in five. I just think he was all around, a, you know, a better, a better tennis player. So, yeah. Okay. So to get to your point, Sakib, you asked me about the best. The, of the group that you mentioned, that list was the right list. Lendl, to me, is a standout. Because if you look at the rest of his record, I mean, uh, this all-time great, three French and three U.S. Opens and eight U.S. Open finals in a row, a couple of Australian. I mean, the guy had such an, a great record. And all those year-end championships. and his 94 career titles. He just was, he, he, he was an underappreciated great champion. And to me, I, I, it, I ached at times that he didn't get this, that he wasn't able to pull this one off. And he lost of course, into to two great grass court players back to back in 86 and 87 in the finals to Becker and Pat cash, but still you felt like he was so worthy of that title. So to me of the, of those that you mentioned, he stands alone at the top. Yeah, I think absolutely. And five semis yeah, and two, yeah. two finals. Having said that, to keep, I, I don't, uh, they, you know, I, I think you could argue that Rafter's a better grass court player than, but Yvonne turned in so many consistent, he, he worked so hard and devoted himself, skipped the French one year to go to Wimbledon to concentrate on Wimbledon. He really made it a chief priority and, and, Changed his game and served in volley a lot. In fact, I think a little too much. But that's that's another story for another podcast. But he's yeah. he's he's the best on that list to me by far uh, of the guys that never won Wimbledon in the Open era. Then then the other one that I would mention pre-Open into the Open era is Ken Rosewall. You know who was in four finals at twenty years apart. The first was in '54 against Rodney. The last was Connors in '74. So. Ken, I think, really deserved to have that on his resume as well. And, and he's another of the all-time greats. Absolutely. And again, you know, the, the consummate discussion is, like, if you talk about Carlos Alcaraz, 
and today's generation who is a grass court player because grass plays differently. And there are a few people like Bublik and Kyrgios and Berrettini who are more comfortable in grass. But in the end, uh, my argument is a good player, if they make a second week, can find their footing on grass. But that wasn't the case in the Lendl years because look at Matsubi Lander. He won two majors in Australia on grass, but at Wimbledon, he never made a semifinal. He looked right. Right. He looks That's pretty true. pretty secondary in his quarterfinal losses to Machir. And even McEnroe in 89, he took a set off him. But yeah. uh, it was no, routine after that. Routine. Now, I mean, part of it is the way the grass was playing in those days. Faster, get chewed up. It was not. It was a tougher court for a Bielander or a Lendl to play on back then. Uh, as guys that were not. I mean, Matt's learned to attack a lot. And Lendl forced himself to attack a lot. But they were not natural servant volleyers like the others. So. I, again, I've often thought, what would it, what, what if Lendl or, and Mats too, but especially Yvonne, what if he didn't be able to play on the grass the way it, it plays today? Uh, he would have maybe stood even a better, maybe he would have finally pulled one off because I think the courts would have been more to his liking. And I think he would have felt, especially would have loved the idea that sort of that he saw what happened as he was starting to fade off the scene. He hadn't retired yet, but he saw Agassi win the title in 92 he saw Courier reach the final the next year against Sampras, and he saw that guys were now able to stay back on the grass comfortably in a way that he didn't feel he could do. And I think the, the way the tournament evolved and the way the courts changed by post, you know, by 2000, say 2002 on, over the last 20 years plus, would have been to Lendl's liking. Hi, right, Steve. So I think this is a good conversation, but uh, I won't host you on a podcast for the preview because I don't know if I'm going to have a preview ready. Uh, so give us two minutes. Uh, what do you see on the men's draw? Or maybe even better, rank your five favorites for the title. <laughs> Outside well, of Novak. Okay, let's even make it easy. Novak, yeah, leave, obviously, he, he's a clear all, favorite, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I put him as the clear favorite. And I think Novak's draw is good. I think he'll like Guys that could have made him slightly more nervous than the people on his half that are all on the other side, the likes of, uh, you know, a Sebastian Corda types, even Holger Runa, who so far he has not liked playing him very much in the two time, the last two times he lost. And it's it, who knows? I, I'm not saying that these people would. I'm just saying, looking at that half of the draw, I think he, he likes his side, potentially Rublev or Kyrgios in the quarters, and we'll see who the semi is, but it's all favorable for Novak, who should be confident having not, you know, going for his fifth in a row at, at, at Wimbledon. And uh, so we make him the clear favorite. I, 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 you and I were talking the other day. I do see Carlos as the second favorite, but a distant second, a distant second. And I think actually he may have to play Runa in the quarters. I don't think, I, I don't think that's a, that's a, a gimme. I think that that's a, I put him in, in at a, only maybe a 55, 45 favorite or slightly slimmer than that. I'd make him more like 53, 47 going in because I think that it's another young player. It's someone in his age bracket who's cocky. And he, I think that could be difficult. And I don't know quite what to expect from Medvedev. So I don't have a clear five. I have a clear one, a clear two. Uh I, I, I would throw Medvedev into the mix, but he's on a car, you know, he's going to have to win. He's in the Sitsipas quarter, so that's, that's, that's good for him, I think, uh, because we can't really necessarily even expect that Stefanos will get there. So the question would be, okay, what happens if Medvedev comes through and makes that semifinal versus Carlos? 
he'll do a lot better than he did in the finals on the hard courts early in the year when he lost to him in Indian Wells. But I think where he was thoroughly outclassed that day. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I still might make him third favorite, but it's like there are so many unproven grass court players in that field in terms of who could actually win the title. Tell me what to, who would your choices be? Because I don't, I don't necessarily have a four and a five here uh, given the state of the, the state of things right now and the inexperience of so many players on grass. Uh, it's, it's, I think a hard, it's hard. I agree hard with you. Test, isn't it? Like, uh, give me your top, your tier then, your tier one. Tier one's clearly Djokovic, and uh, tier two is uh, Alcaraz. Uh, but again, you know, the, all these guys are unproven components on grass. Of course, winning Queens has been a good stepping stone for many a great players in the past. So Alcaraz, all of us believe, has the credentials, has the, has the artillery to go and, you know, do well on grass. So he's my number two as well. Then I think there are a bunch of guys, if they win three matches, they can probably play better. Like Medvedev is leading in that group. Runa is there. Taylor Fritz was that guy, but he had a pretty mediocre Grasco season, but I still have faith in him making the quarters last against Nadal. If he gets few matches, best of five, you know, he's someone who's been knocking that door to assert himself into a semifinal or second week player. Yeah, and happened? I would I, I would have put him in, I, I agree. And I he would have been in my five when you asked me for five, but I haven't liked what I've seen those last couple of times. It doesn't mean he can't snap out of it. He's got a good temperament. I think he's got a good outlook. He tends to be able to leave his losses behind him and just get on with things. But I don't know. I'm a little concerned about his form right now. So, I, I, yeah, I, I suppose I'd put him the, somewhere around five among the candidates. And how do you feel about Sinner? Now, he's had a tough time lately. He certainly played, good, certainly played well there last year to beat Carlos and to take the first two sets from Novak before going down in the quarters. What are your thoughts on him? Yeah, that's a good call out. I would actually put him in the same category, uh, probably even better than uh, Medvedev, just because he made a quarters last year and took two yeah. sets from Novak on that court, which is a difficult, difficult thing to achieve. His health is his biggest, you know, nemesis so far. He does get injured very often, and uh, if he can navigate the first week, he's someone you know who definitely has the game and the power and the comfort to play on this course based on a small sample size. I would rate him above Runa, and then I think tier three would be Runa, Fritz, and Koda. Interesting. Yeah, I might put Runa right now above Sinner just because Sinner's coming off an injury and a very difficult stretch post Monte Carlo. So, again, he has to sort of make a, a, a considerable leap right now from where he's been. And so I, I'm not convinced he gets that that role that you're talking about where he, he, he records three victories, gets to the second week. He's in the 16s. He's in the groove and he starts playing like a top of the line center. But that's what makes this tournament so interesting because aside from obviously Novak and then Carlos by winning Queens sort of raises his own morale and makes him believe a bit more than he would have. Then it's, it's very hard to assess the others. I mean, I, 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 that's most years I have a, a better feel for, candidates three four and five this year i don't yeah and, and you know that's kind of making with the gorani when you say which run even more spectacular that this year's championship we can't even come up with legit three or four contenders or challenges to novak's crown you know uh, because that's how dominant novak is and that's how these guys haven't have a proven resume on grass and that probably goes 
beyond grass. I don't think there's a player like Ivanisevic in today's game who can be this ultimate wild card. I think that's why this episode is fitting, you know, 22 years after his great, you know, win on center court that uh, I think sometimes people don't realize how long of a shot, how long of a wild card he was coming in and winning that crazy, crazy championship with all these incredible opponents that you listed from Rosetsky to Safin to Radek to Moya. That's, uh, I think that's... Yeah, you know, it wasn't always on center. I believe the Roddick match, I'm pretty sure the Roddick, I saw the Roddick match, it was on court one. And, you know, he said he was moving around. and But yeah, that was not easy. Not even Moya at that stage, who's not a great grass court player necessarily, but, a, you know, an accomplished player. And so the, all of those wins were impressive. Rosetsky too. You're playing Rosetsky in, in Britain, where, you know, the crowds for Greg and... And Safin, again, being a big server himself. So there, there was always the potential that Gorn could get nosed out seven six five seven seven six seven six. It didn't happen. And he, he enjoyed himself. And that's the reason, obviously, that he's, he's in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I mean, he needed that title, and that eventually got him there. Now, in fact, fitting entry and a fitting end, Steve. Thank you very much. I know you have a busy afternoon coming up. And the listeners of this podcast, you know, will be ready to watch Wimbledon by the time this show is released. But go check out the show, as I call him, the ultimate wildcard. He's Steve Flink, historian, Hall of Famer, and good friend of the podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. Enjoyed this, and maybe we should do something similar in the near future. Zakeeb, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on.